Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us on another wonderful Tuesday. Right now, on Tuesdays on the Murder Bucket podcast, we are going through a cold case road trip series. If this is your first time joining us, you might not know what the cold case road trip is. I'm going to explain very quickly. Over the course of about 30 plus episodes, we travel to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories and each week we cover a cold case in two locations. Tonight, we have made it to stops 35 and 36, and we will be traveling to Idaho and Oregon. But first, let's do our weekend-slash-week recap. Last week for me was super uneventful, except for Thursday, we had a tornado warning here in our area, And my husband was working a little bit later for his job in Virginia and wasn't able to go and pick up our daughter, so I got to do it. While I was traveling from my work to our family friend's house to go get her is when that tornado warning actually started, and then a huge downpour started, so I was driving through the entire thing. Now, thankfully, I didn't see any tornadoes. I didn't see anything super crazy. I did have to figure out a different way to get to our family friend's house because one of the highways that we travel often around here was completely shut down because an asphalt truck decided to do a barrel roll in the middle of the road. Thankfully, that driver is okay. Nobody was seriously injured. All is well. I was finally able to get to our family friend's house and I stayed there for a little while just to kind of let the rain die down and then we headed home. My husband actually wasn't able to get home until about 7.30 that night so he only got to see our daughter for about five minutes when he went into her room, woke her up from sleeping, kind of colored her a little bit and then put her back down which was super cute to watch on the monitor. Friday night, I went out to eat with a friend of mine from work and then actually one of our customers that comes in periodically that we have gotten to know really well. And we had dinner, we had drinks, and then we just kind of hung out and it was just a really great night. Then Saturday morning, our friend Lindsay met us here at the house and we all traveled to downtown Annapolis to go kayaking, which was absolutely fantastic. Our daughter did so well for the first time being out in the kayak. She didn't try and like get out. She wasn't too squirmy, which was really nice. And I only had to put on Bluey for about the last 20 minutes to kind of get her distracted because she was trying to play with the water, but she couldn't reach. And I was a little worried that we were going to tip over. But all in all, she did really well. And then we headed out for brunch. Got some great food at this local place called Grumps that I have to tell you every time that my dad is in town 
He probably goes there almost every single day because, well, it's just that good. Sunday, we went to church, and we were supposed to play softball that afternoon, but another big rainstorm came through, so it got canceled. So instead, we came home, we watched a few movies, hung out on the couch, and just decided to be a little lazy. Monday wasn't eventful because usually Mondays my husband will play D&D with a group of friends, but they are ending their campaign, so a couple of them couldn't actually be there last night. So instead, we just grilled, sat outside, and hung out. And then now, it's Tuesday, and you and I are hanging out, and we are going to get into our episode. Stop 35, Idaho. 33-year-old Jeremy Burt was born and raised in American Falls, Idaho. He graduated from American Falls High School in 1991 and joined the United States Navy immediately after. He served in the Gulf War from 1993 to 1999, and he traveled to the Persian Gulf, Australia, and Japan. While Jeremy was stationed in Japan, he met his first wife, Rena. Once he finished active duty service, he realized that Rena did not want to live in the United States, so they parted ways. Jeremy moved back to Idaho while Rena went back to Japan. Shortly after moving back, he met Kim George. The two hit it off and knew that they wanted to get married. Unfortunately, Jeremy was still married to Rena, and because she had moved back to Japan, it wasn't easy to file for divorce. He and Kim located a divorce lawyer named Jenny Braun, and his divorce was finalized in May of 2002. He and Kim married in 2003. That same year, their daughter Mackenzie was born, and she was the light of his life, and he was extremely excited to be a father. Jeremy and Jenny began to have an affair shortly after he and Kim got married. During this time, he became knowledgeable of illegal activity that she was involved in. This led him to record several of their conversations. A restraining order was issued against her after she tried bribing him not to testify against her. He testified in front of a grand jury in 2004. A man named Aaron Bernard also testified against her in front of a grand jury. She pleaded guilty to forging a judge's signature on documents in a custody case, influencing a witness, and issuing a check without funds. She was disbarred in the state of Idaho. She was then sentenced to one year in the Ada County Jail with 14 years of probation. An article in the IdahoStateJournal.com states that she now resides in Utah. As a result of all of this, Jeremy and Kim divorced but remained friends and devoted parents. Jeremy then moved in with his father, and over the years, he and Kim had continued an on-again, off-again relationship eventually talking about getting remarried. One weekend, when Kim was out of town for a work seminar, Jeremy spent time with his family and his daughter Mackenzie in American Falls. After returning home, he told his father that he was going out again to meet up with a friend to talk about hunting. He asked his father to tuck Mackenzie into bed for him, and he was never seen again. 
Kim started to receive bizarre text messages from Jeremy. They stated that he was planning on leaving town to start a new life under a new identity. Neither Kim nor his father believed that these messages came from Jeremy. The reasoning for this is that the wording of the messages and the content. In an article on NBCNews.com, private investigator Marky Davis, who is a family friend who helped in the search, is quoted saying, He is very straightforward. He wants to talk to you in person, and he wouldn't send a text like that. It caught Kim off guard, and she thought it wasn't his style. Once she returned home from her trip, she also found that her vehicle was missing. She filed a stolen vehicle report. Detective Joshua Ransom, who is a lead detective with the Boise Police Department, found that there were charges on Jeremy's credit card about 45 minutes away, but then there was nothing. These charges were from a gas station in Mountain Home and a six to seven minute phone call that was made on a payphone. An official missing persons report was filed on February 12, 2007. In May of 2007, Kim's red Mercury Cougar that Jeremy was driving the night that he disappeared was found abandoned and burned in a remote area in the Owyhee Desert in southwest Idaho. The vehicle was searched, but no evidence was found. Detective Ransom stated that the location of the vehicle was strange because it would have been very difficult terrain for the car to drive on. He is quoted in an article on IdahoNews.com saying, Clearly, in my opinion, the intention was to hide it and destroy the evidence. The car made it down there. There obviously had to be someone else there to help get whoever drove it down there out. Detectives tried to go down in a four-wheel drive vehicle, but they had to walk the last couple hundred yards because it would have wrecked the truck that they were in. Roughly three months after Jeremy's disappearance, Kim married Jeff Shaw. Kim has never been questioned or listed as a suspect, but several articles believe that her rushing into marriage raises red flags. While married to Jeff, they had another daughter named Ilana. In 2016, Kim died by suicide at the age of 41. In an article on IdahoStateJournal.com, Jeremy's mother Cheryl is quoted saying, When someone you love dies, you have a place where you can go to honor them, to remember them. But we don't have that place to go. We don't know what happened to Jeremy. His daughter deserves to know what happened to her dad. Remember earlier when I mentioned a man named Aaron Bernard who testified against Jenny? Well, Aaron went missing in 2004, and there are several people who believe that his case and Jeremy's case are connected. A year prior to his disappearance, he was dating a woman named Constance. Constance's best friend was Jenny. Mackenzie was three years old when her father went missing, and as of 2021, she is 18 years old. No suspect has ever been named in Jeremy's disappearance. Jeremy was last seen wearing a dark-colored turtleneck and Levi jeans. If you have any information regarding his disappearance, I encourage you to contact the Boise Police Department. We will be right back with stops 36 in Oregon 
after a word from tonight's sponsor. Thank you to Unidragon for sponsoring tonight's episode. Everyone has faced the same problem, finding the perfect gift to give a friend, your husband, your nephew, or even yourself. There are so many things to choose from, but I have the solution. It's called Unidragon, expertly crafted wooden puzzles. Here's why so many people love Unidragon puzzles. Every puzzle piece has its own unique shape. They have an incredibly colorful design. Each puzzle is packed in a premium wooden gift box. Every month, Unidragon releases new puzzles, and they are interesting for adults and children. Now, I recently got the Charming Owl puzzle. I knew it was going to come in a wooden box, but I didn't expect for it to be so pretty. This puzzle is a work of art, and when I finish with it, I might frame it. Now, Unidragon has a special offer for all Murder Bucket listeners. If you go to unidragon.com and enter the promo code BUCKET, you'll receive 10% off your order. That's BUCKET, B-U-C-K-E-T, for 10% off. And we're back. Stop 36, Oregon. On December 5th, 1998, Derek Ingebertson, his dad Robert, and his grandfather Bob went hiking in the Rocky Point area of Winnema National Forest in Klamath County, Oregon, on the hunt for the perfect Christmas tree. According to Medium.com, they were looking for the Christmas tree for their disabled neighbor. While walking through the snow-covered foliage, Robert decided to walk ahead of the group. He told Derek to stay with his grandfather. Derek kept asking if he could catch up with his dad, and after a while, his grandfather got annoyed and eventually gave in. Bob wasn't worried about him going ahead because he was very familiar with his way around this area. Derek wasn't new to the outdoors. As an infant, his mom would take him on bear hunts by carrying him in a pack. He carried a hatchet with him and always made tiny marks on every passing tree. He once hiked 20 miles along the Oregon countryside. His family nicknamed him Bear Boy. The outdoors wasn't Derek's only interest. He also loved to read, and he was a huge fan of R.L. Stein's Goosebump series. Once Bob caught up with Robert around 3 p.m., they both noticed that Derek wasn't with either of them. Robert immediately sprinted back up the hill as the wet snow fell steadily. He called out for Derek but got no response. Around 4 p.m., he flagged down Fred Hines, who was driving along the road. He asked him to call 911 to ask for help. Fred was able to make the phone call two miles away at a resort. The police arrived two hours after this phone call was made. An initial search was completed by foot using rescue canines as well as aerial searches using a civil air patrol plane and an Air Force reserved helicopter. The police did find a crude shelter made of fir boughs beneath several fallen logs near where he went missing. 
the dogs were unable to detect his scent. A set of footprints were discovered in the snow. They made a loop from the location where his father had last seen him all the way to a clearing near the road. They then found a small snow angel, which they think was left by Derek. A snowplow destroyed the tracks and no additional footprints were found. With the extreme winter conditions in the area, many believe that he would have quickly succumbed to the elements. While walking around, Bob discovered a hole in the ice at the lake and children's footprints on the bank. Divers searched the next day and then during the spring thaw, but again, no evidence was found. Early on, a witness came forward stating that they saw an unidentified man struggling with a young boy in the area on the same day that Derek disappeared. This witness assumed that the man was the boy's father. There were other reports of an unidentified man driving a two-door Honda asking for directions in the forest that day. The police questioned Robert and Bob, and they performed a polygraph test, which they both passed and were cleared as suspects. On December 13th, just eight days after Derek disappeared, Klamath County Police suspended their search. His family continued independent search efforts by camping at the site in a donated camper van for over two weeks while hundreds of volunteers continued to organize search efforts. Their efforts were then terminated on December 18th due to sub-zero temperatures because it made it unsafe for anyone to travel throughout the area. Over 10,000 hours were spent performing ground searches. But again, nobody found any evidence as to Derek's whereabouts. In September of 1999, the police discovered graffiti that were scrawled on the wall of a public restroom approximately 300 miles south of Portland that was thought to be connected to Derek's disappearance. A portion of this wall was removed and sent to a state laboratory for analysis. The police never released the wording of the graffiti, and investigators concluded that whatever was written on the wall was just a cruel joke. Robert searched for his son every single weekend and every day off whenever he could for over two years. Over the years, there were no leads until the family received a letter from an inmate claiming that another inmate, Frank Milligan, who is a convicted sex offender, confessed to him while in prison that he killed Derek. This lead did seem extremely promising. The police decided to question him, and Frank told them the alleged location of Derek's remains. They traveled to this area while his family prepared for the worst. After a very extensive search, no trace of human remains were found. A Marion County Assistant District Attorney told the family that Frank had agreed to plead guilty to killing Derek only if they agreed to spare him the death penalty. When the paperwork was presented a few days later, Frank refused to sign it. In an article on strangeoutdoors.com, it states that many people criticized the search and rescue effort because the authorities had been extremely slow to get to the scene on the night that Derek disappeared. Apparently, the coordinator was reluctant to interrupt the Christmas dinner for the Klamath County Search and Rescue Team's annual awards dinner 
until they were sure that a rescue was actually warranted. There is a theory that if he had fallen into the lake, the hatchet that he was carrying should have been found. Portland diver Jeff Priest spent several hours working his way through the shallow water using a metal detector. He did find several metal objects, including an oil filter and a metal road sign, but he has never located the hatchet. 22 years have now passed since Derek disappeared. His family has celebrated 22 Christmases without him. They still continue to search for any evidence of his whereabouts. They do believe that he was kidnapped and is no longer in this area. His grandfather, Bob, who was the last person to see him alive, passed away in 2012 without any knowledge of what happened to his grandson. In an article on KTVL.com, Derek's mom, Lori, is quoted saying, I want to believe that he is still alive to this day, and until somebody shows me something different, I don't think I'm ever going to give up on him. When he disappeared, I started watching everybody crumble, and I couldn't do that. If I crumbled, then that meant everyone was just going to get worse. At the time of his disappearance, Derek was last seen wearing a blue snowmobile suit, a denim jacket, navy blue Route 66 pants, a black sweatshirt, an Oakland A's t-shirt, a hat, a felt-lined camouflage-printed boots, and gloves with a Goosebumps logo. If you know anything regarding his disappearance, I encourage you to contact the Klamath County Sheriff's Department. Thank you for taking the time to listen to tonight's episode. Please enjoy this promo from my friends at Three Spooked Girls Podcast. Hey there, I'm Tara. And I'm Jessica. And together we co-host the podcast Three Spooked Girls. If you love the paranormal. Or murder. Join us on Mondays for full-length episodes where we discuss our favorite paranormal stories and true crime cases. And join us again on Thursdays for our mini-sodes called Stabby Snippets, where we tell you all about true crimes happening in the news. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, wherever the hell else you listen to your pods at. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by using the handle at 3 Girls. Come and hang out with us and get your spooky on while we scare the hell out of you. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.